0: Let's talk about that great God who is always the same. We're going to take our Bibles and we're going to Numbers chapter 14 this evening. Numbers chapter 14. For those of you who have been following along with us in this series in the wilderness wandering, uh, it's, been, it's been a road. It's been a fun journey and yet a challenging one for many of us as we uh, work through it and uh, there are times I don't like it because it hits me upside the head and it's like, all right, art, work on this and work on that and work on these things. So um, I don't always like that, but at the same time, I'm very thankful that God's word is very applicable to our lives. I was joking with a couple of people. I said, I, I don't know how I'm gonna do tonight. I, it's been like seven, I feel like it's been seven months since I preached to people. I usually like stare at that camera. I'm like, hi, I hope you're laughing at my jokes right now. And uh, I, I mean, I got the one when Pastor had COVID, but other than that, it's, it's different. It's like nice, it is, I, Pastor is right. It's nice to see people when you're preaching, uh, And so that's, that's really a, a joy to be able to do that. But in Numbers chapter 14, we're going to pick up in our study, uh, it, is a, it is a dark day in Israel's history. Now, May 19, 1780, it was a dark day in New England's history. In fact, if you do some research, you just have to Google New England's dark day. And it will pop up all the different accounts and stories of what happened on this day and the theories behind what had happened. But there was basically what most historians have come to is a perfect storm of the weather and wildfires. Yes, there were wildfires before global warming was, you know, ever, it's, it's been around. Uh, but what had happened on that day was uh, there was dark cloud cover, there was fog, and there were wildfires that were occurring in Ontario. And the, the smoke from that, the fog, everything occurred. And it became so dark that day that they said by noon, everybody had to be walking around with candles. And they had to use candles all the way through to the next evening. In fact, uh, preachers talk about that day as one of the greatest revivals that happened in New England. People were running to the churches thinking this was an apocalyptic thing happening. They, they didn't know any better. They didn't have telemetry and satellites and everything to tell them what was going on. They just knew it was a dark day. And so they were running to the churches to repent and to get their hearts right with God. And it was that, it was that moment where it was just a dark time for New England back in, back in 1780. You know, as we look at history, there are dark moments in history, are there not there are moments that we look and we're like we could we could argue over the darkest days in America's history or the darkest days in world history and start looking and you can look through that and we could we could probably all have our own opinions and we come to different moments different events that would happen in fact if you've been traveling with us in this journey through the book of numbers you you'll know that there have been multiple correlations to our present day society and our situations that have been happening in our country, in our world, as we've been looking at the parallels through it. I'm not here today to say, all right, let's look at, this is the darkest days of American history, and here we are, and you know, look, we are on the road to ruin. I, in fact, I wanna take a little bit of more of Charlie Brown's approach. Charlie Brown, I saw a, uh, a cartoon this week, I thought this was really appropriate. Charlie said, Snoopy, many folks are praying for God to heal our land, but I think he's still waiting for the people to humble themselves, repent, and turn from their wicked ways. And as I was looking at it and thinking about it, everything is happening, everything that's going on in our world, there's only so many things we can do. And when it comes down to, we have to look at our own lives. And even everything that's going to happen in what is the darkest day in Israel's short history at this point it really was a lot of individual decisions, a lot of individual choices that occurred in this moment. You have Israel as a young nation. Yes, they had a dark moment with the, uh, with the calf back at Mount Sinai and the golden calf. But Numbers chapter 14, it's a dark moment. And this is, this is by God's providence that this is where we're at in the book study. This is not, okay, pastor just decided to whip out a doom and gloom message. I'm going to be honest, there's not a lot of hope in this passage, and yet there is hope. There, this, this, is a, this is a moment that is just difficult for Israel. They are now at the point where God is leading them to the promised land. He's like, we're, we're going in, and as he's doing it, he's providentially leading them. He's promising them these good things from the land. God is saying, I'm going to provide, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to give you all these daily provisions that you need. And he promises this to them. And he says, I'm going to give you this land. And so they go and they send out spies. They, they search out the land and the spies are gonna come back. And as the spies return from their reconnaissance mission, the 10 evil spies are going to bring what God calls an evil report. He's going to look and, and God declares this as an evil report. It's not just a preacher saying it. God says, this is not a good thing that they're bringing before the people. So they bring this uh, chapter 13, verse 32. They brought up an evil report of the land. This land that God has said is good. This land that God has said, I'm going to give to you. This land that God has said, I'm going to provide and protect you in it. And they come back and say, it is an evil report. It is not a good land. And they send, this, send them down this path to a, a road to ruin. I mean, we talked about it in my last, the last lesson. <laughs> they're, the spies, very similar to the politicians that we see nowadays, where they're going to use scare tactics, where they're going to um, get the spies to, the spies are going to get the people to recognize that in order for us to get what we want, we don't want to go into the land. It's scary. It's t- We're going to use scare tactics. So they talk about their health. They talk about their safety. They talk about their children and their loved ones. And they use all these same, same political arguments that really we see and we've seen over the last months. that They're using the exact same things. In fact, they're even, I call them flip-floppers last time because if you look back through chapter 13, they come back and say, this is a great land and all these inhabitants are thriving there. And then when it's time to go take the land, they're like, oh, this is not a good land. And nobody, the the land devours itself. Well, if the land devours itself, then how are people thriving and living in the land? They're just, they're back and forth. All they're attempting to do is get people to be afraid. They're trying to push the children of Israel to become Uh, stagnant and stymied and not move forward in their life because of the fear of the unknown and their their uncomfortableness that is going to occur in there. And so we talked about in chapter 13 that this road to ruin started when they began to forget God in their decision-making process. The entire chapter of 13, other than verse number one, you have no mention of God. God is not involved in any of their decision-making process. That is foreign to the book of Numbers. Book of Numbers is all about conversations between God and his people and God and his mediator, Moses, and God and Aaron. It's all this conversation, but there's no mention of God in that process. They fixated on the hardships and the difficulties. What brought a hard time, a difficult moment for these these Jews here is that they were so focused on the giants in the land and how incredibly difficult this land is going to be to go and conquer. They fixated so much on the difficulties and hardships that they didn't move forward in life. They were there and then they faltered in their theology where you have God who is saying, I'm going to give this to you. I'm going, I have your best interest at heart. I have all these things for you. I'm going to protect you. I, do, I know what's in the land. And yet they're looking and saying, does God really know all this stuff? And their theology, though they won't deny God, they find themselves faltering in God's ways in a practical everyday aspect. And so what we have is really the, the epic beginning of the collapse Of this generation of of Israelites. So we pick up in chapter 14, verse 1, and what is happening? Everybody is afraid. This fear has spread. And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would to God that we would have died in the land of Egypt, or that we would have died in the wilderness. We see that all the congregation, now whether or not this is every single person of all the two million people, it doesn't seem to be that way. But it is that idea of, oh, you know, some of you have said this week, oh, all of America is in ruins. It doesn't mean that every single place is in ruins, it's just a general term. The whole, the general tenor of the people of the children of Israel, they were complaining. They were rebelling, they were weeping, they were, they were rebelling against God. And so that was happening. They turned to that murmuring and the murmuring was the complaining and the rebellion against God. We see that in the book of Numbers. It is a specific term that's often used here for the rebellion and the grumbling, complaining against God and ultimately his leadership and his ultimate authority. We don't like what God has for us. We think it is going to be too difficult. It is just going to be uncomfortable. And so God, we don't like it and we want something different. And so they begin to complain. They begin to push forward. You notice, notice there irrational statements even here. In verse three, verse, uh, uh, verse two. Would to God that we would have died in the land of Egypt. We've been through this a couple times with these people. Really, you want to go back to that land? You want to go back and under, you wanna change this, this person, Moses, the leader of God, For a a despotic pharaoh dictator who's going to put you back in chains—that's really what you want. It's just irrational, but they were so fearful of the potential. Where is God leading us? What does God have for us? And then they say, "Or you know what? It would be better if we just died in the wilderness." Underline that. Remind yourself of that because that's going to come back later on. That—that it would be better if we just die in the wilderness. Now, most of you here, you know what's going to happen. What's going to happen to a bunch of these people? They're going to what? They're going to die in the wilderness. They're gonna get what they asked for. I'm so thankful God does not give me everything I asked for because there are moments that I look back, I'm like, yeah, that would have not been good. Thank you, God. But he's gonna give them what what they asked for. But look at at verse three, the essence of verse three. Whereby, here's what, wherefore the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword. He's like, it would have been better to go to Egypt. It would have been better to die. But no, God's gonna bring us to this land. God's gonna bring us here to die. That's what, and they use the word Jehovah. They're not, they're not mixing around with just like, okay, God. They're saying, Jehovah brought us here to die. That's some pretty bad theology right there. To know that they're looking and saying, God doesn't, and, and our wives, and our kids, all of them, they're gonna, we're all gonna die. That's this fear mongering that is happening. It is just spreading. And what does it ultimately cause? Verse number four, they look and they say, let us make a captain. Let us take a new leader and let's return back to Egypt. We're done with Moses. We don't like him. We don't, he's, he's too much of the big figure in the room. He's too dictatorial. He's too straightforward. He's got all of these answers. We don't like him, so therefore we want somebody different. And you see this, this rebellion that, that begins to happen. It's interesting. I think they look and they say, they don't say out with the old and in with the new. They say out with the old and let's go back to the old. They say, let's. Get somebody, get rid of Moses. Let's get someone new and let's go back to Egypt. makes no, no sense. And yet, how many of us love to go back to our Egypts? How many of us in our spirit, no matter how many years we've been saved, we still struggle with those sins, those temptations, where we want to go back no matter, we know that God has got so many good and wonderful and blessed things for us. And yet we find ourselves straying back to our old egypts our addictions our struggles with temptation our viewing our thoughts and and we, we we find ourselves doing very similar things and it leads down a road to ruin so they the the prophets i just want to put this in here just for a little extra isaiah jeremiah and ezekiel actually all pick up on later on in the the major prophets that this phrase returning to israel they use it as a phrase for rebellion against god and his authority and so even as they look back, they say, this is what these children of Israel were doing. They were rebelling against God. They were pushing his authority to the side and saying, we want to do our own thing. We want what we want. We don't want a godly perspective. We don't want a godly worldview. We want to live our own way. If you're like me, you're looking and you're saying, all right, yeah, I can definitely see how the, all those things parallel with our country and things that are happening but I want us to keep it personal. Do we do the same thing? Do we as individuals find ourselves pushing against God because of all the different fears that we have or the unknowns that are facing? Remind yourself of this, and this is important to understand. They're they're gonna cast a vote, but they're not a democracy. They are a theocracy. God is in control. God is the one who is leading. It is not up for a vote. And yet they think they have an opinion and a vote in this. God is looking and saying, no, this is what I have. This is who I, I've placed Moses here. I've placed Aaron here. This is the, this is the government structure that I have for you. And they're looking and saying, well, we don't want that. And really, they, they have no vote, but they think they do. They think they keep pushing. And you know, as we look at the road to ruin in this first section, I just, I can't get away from the fact that this road to ruin, this destruction, this path that they are headed down that is going to hurt them individually and as a nation, it's driven by the fear of the unknown. What are we gonna face in the land? It's gonna to be too much. I don't know what's gonna happen down the road. I don't know what's gonna happen in the next week, the next month. It might make me a little uncomfortable. And yet God looks and says, you just—you need to follow me. I'm going to help you through. My th- your theology says God's got this. And yet we look and we say, hmm, I wonder sometimes, I mean, let's just, let's just look at it. I don't want to park here all night. And yet, isn't this where we're at? I mean, are you uncomfortable a little bit? Some of you, maybe. We're, what's, what's down the road? Are you fearful a little bit? Maybe. And yet our theology says God's on the throne. And my, my mission hasn't changed. What God, is, what God had for me last week, God still has for me this week. And I have to look and I have to say, okay, I'm, I'm nervous. Sure, but it's not going to stop me from doing what God has told me to do. It's not going to stop me from sharing the gospel. It's not going to stop us from meeting and gathering. Sure, it might be uncomfortable down the road. It could happen. It may not. We had this same conversation 12 years ago when Barack Obama took office and everybody was like mourning. And yet here we are. God's on the throne. This is what the children of Israel are struggling with. They don't like it. They don't like what God has allowed. And yet we have to look and we have to say, okay, wait, where do we go? What do we do? Moses and Joshua and Aaron, what are they going to do with the children of Israel? They're going to plea. They're going to look and say, we need to change. There is this, Moses and Aaron fall on their face before. Uh, now, now, notice what they do. Now, normally when we hear fall on the face, what is it? They fall on their face before God. But look at who Moses and Aaron fall on the face. What does it say? They fall on their face before all the assembly of who? All of Israel. What are they pleading for? They're looking at the nation and saying, no, change, don't rebel against God. Change, change your ways. Follow after God. The only thing that, that changes People is the willingness to repent from their ways and turn to God, to turn after the, that's what's going to change people. And Moses and Aaron understood this. They're saying, you need to repent. You are rebelling against God. Do the, do the right thing. Joshua and Caleb, verse six, what do they do? They're rending their clothes. It's a, it's a sign of remorse, a sign of repentance, but it's also a way of telling the people that they need to change what they are doing. Change needs to occur. And we may be here now and looking and saying, even in our nation, okay, yes, change needs to occur. But I would argue the change at a national level starts at individual levels. And it starts in the church. And it starts with us being right with God. And it starts with us making sure that we are on the correct path not rebelling against the ways of God, but rather submitting to them and saying, God, you are in control. I'm going to follow. And they look at these individuals and what do they say? They say, don't rebel, verse number nine. Don't rebel against the Lord. They're pleading with their friends and their family. They're pleading with others in their neighborhood. Don't rebel against God. Come back to God's ways. Turn to God's ways. They're they're longing for people to get right with God and that ought to be our longing, desire. That everybody in America, but let's keep it smaller for now. Everybody across the street, everyone in my neighborhood, in my family, that they would turn to God, that they would follow after the ways, the path that we're heading down. They're saying, it's not good. We need to change. And so they speak with the people and another conversation occurs. In verses eight and nine, look at what they say. They're going to agree with the uh, the spies. Are they not? They're going to say the land is exceedingly good. It is, it is really good, verse seven. They say, it's great. And they say, if the Lord delights in us, verse number eight, then he will bring us into land. In order for the Lord to delight in them, in order for him to give success, they had to be obeying him. And so Joshua and Caleb are looking and saying, we need to obey. God has said, go, we need to go. And there's this constant back and forth. And they're like, no, if we want God's blessing and we want God to give to us, we need to be obedient to God. And then he will give us this land. So Joshua and Caleb are looking at the people and saying, Don't rebel against God. Don't disobey his ways. Follow after what God has planned, what God is saying. Because the road to ruin, it really is driven by turning a deaf ear to the righteous who plead with you to change. When we hear week in and week out from pastor about how to live righteously in this world, do we turn a deaf ear? When he talks about our conversation, our speech this morning, which none of us like, well, maybe you do, but I don't like to deal with that. I like to be able to say whatever I say, type whatever I want and be, you know, just let it out. And yet I have to look and say, wait, does my conversation, how do I do that? Or do I turn a deaf ear to that? The people are looking at Joshua and Caleb right now and they're gonna turn a deaf ear to them. And it's going to lead down a road to ruin. The the messages we hear week in and week out, whether from here or on the radio or on a podcast, a, a, a religious book that you're reading, do you look and go, oh, that was really nice, or do you allow that to penetrate your heart and to change you? That is the road that God desires for us. And yet turning a deaf ear to that, it leads us down a road to ruin. They look, and notice, notice their theology, verse number nine. They're gonna say, don't rebel against the Lord, neither fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their defense is departed from them. The Lord is with us, do not fear them look at their theology, opposite of the other 10, they're saying, God knows what's ahead. God is strong enough to deal with what's ahead. In fact, they're just bred. Their defense is gone because our lofty potentate is way stronger than any giant that's in the land. Anything we face, he looks and says, God's got this. He says, why? Because the Lord is with us. He hasn't forsaken us. He hasn't left us out. He hasn't said, oh, forgot about you guys. He looks and says, don't be afraid because I'm in control. I know what's happening. I am well aware. And so so Joshua says, hey, you want to keep your bad theology, it is a road to ruin. It is a road to ruin. Now, I took this and obviously went back to the elections, but you can place into this cancer, medical treatments, finances, marriage relationships that are going through a difficult time, you can take whatever it is that's causing a dark day in your life and ask yourself this, how's your theology in those dark moments? God's in control. Well, except for these elections, because I don't know how God could have been in control of any of this. God is sovereign in the affairs of men, except for everything that's happened this week. God has my best interest. Really, God, do you really have our best interest at heart? Because right now I'm really wondering. And we find ourselves, our theology can get squirmy. It can can get rough. God is moving in the world. He's moving the world toward his ultimate glory. I mean, how many of us every week we say, even so, Lord, quickly come. We're, We're looking forward to that. And then when God potentially moves the world and shakes the world, Toward a little more end time stance. What do we say? No, we don't want that. God, you got it messed up. No, p- bring us back. Because we don't like that. Because that's uncomfortable. Because I don't know what's going to happen. That brings a little bit of fear into my life. It doesn't make me easy. And, w- and we, we will say one thing, but our practical theology says another. God, you're always good. Except for these financial difficulties I'm facing. Or except for the, the medical diagnosis I got. I don't know we can easily look and say we know our theology but when we come to the practical everyday working of our theology do we live that out god is looking joshua looks caleb looks and says to not to take your good theology but not put it to practice in life that's bad theology because theology is about not just what you know but it's how we live it's putting it to practice in our lives. And what does their response, look at, what, look at what Joshua and Caleb's stand for righteousness does. It provokes. It provokes a response from these individuals. The response of the leadership by Moses, Joshua and Aaron, it changed the situation completely. They're basically looking at these individuals and say, make a choice. God or these people, what are we gonna do? Which way are we gonna go? They're calling the people to repent. And yet we see the coup begin. We see them that they're gonna pick up stones in verse number 10. The congregation bade bade stone them. They wanted to stone them. The odds are not good. It is a mob versus four or five people, four people. It's really the final straw here for God as well. Because we see that, we know that stoning is a frequent expression of anger. The people were not happy with Moses, Joshua, Caleb, and Aaron. And there was violence that was about to ensue. And you have, in the midst of this provocation, because these individuals stood for righteousness and the others did not like that, they became violent. But now we have this. We have God stepping in. Look at the second half of verse 10. And the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. And what ends up happening is the the stoning stops. Because the glory of God was present. Exodus 24 reminds us that the glory of God is like a devouring fire. No wonder these individuals stopped in their tracks. No wonder they took a step back because now you have the all-consuming fire of God, the powerful God from on high is there present. And he's saying, you're not gonna touch these people because they are standing for righteousness. They are protected by me. And those of us who choose and I hope I can say those of us because I really want to find myself continuing down that path. And I hope it's the same for you. That when we choose not to go down the road of room, when we choose to stand for righteousness, as difficult as that may be, as fearful as that may be at sometimes, as uncomfortable as it may become in the future, we must remember that we will experience the presence and the protection of God. It doesn't mean that everything's gonna be easy. It doesn't mean that it's just gonna all work out and just gonna be simple and no problems. We know that from many of the accounts we have from missionaries and from other individuals around the world who individuals stand for righteousness and then they get beaten, or in a wheelchair the rest of their life. And yet they will look and they'll say, God is with me and God has protected me because they understand that. I'm not looking and saying here, guess what, next week, that's where we're at or next year, that's where we're at. All I'm saying is when we stand for righteousness, it may be difficult, but God is with us. God sides with those historically, biblically. God sides with those who stand for right. We must stand for righteousness, biblical righteousness, and continue on our mission here in this world to be salt and light to a lost and dying people. They need the gospel, and God has given us this encouragement to say, Joshua and Caleb, the odds were not in their favor, and yet God had their back, and then you get this personal conversation. It was not just a provocation of the people, but we're going to find that God is provoked. Look at in verse number 11 and 12. God is going to say, how long, He's gonna talk about provoking and he's gonna talk about unbelief. Let's unpack that for a second. God says in verse number 11, and the Lord says to Moses, we're we're allowed into that conversation of Moses and God. And God says to him, how long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be that they don't believe me for all the signs which I have showed among them? God is looking, when he says how long, it's not that this is just gonna go on. He's like, I have had it. I have endured it long enough and it is finished. I am going to deal with these attitudes of the heart. He says, how long are they going to provoke me? The word provoke here has this idea of the rejection or the spurning of a person that causes them to retaliate. They have pushed the buttons of God with their unbelief, with their rebellion, with their murmuring, with their complaining, and they've looked and said, all of your goodness and all of your kindness to us is not enough. And they push the buttons too long and God says, okay, I'm done. In fact, he even talks about their unbelief. It's not the idea that they don't have the correct position on God. They call him Jehovah. They know that he is the God of Israel. It's the fact that they refuse to trust and rely upon him in their everyday life. They're looking and saying, nope, we're not gonna, we're not gonna practically live out what God has said for us to do. And God looks and he's like, he decides he's going to unleash after them. Look at verse 12. I will smite them with a pestilence. I will disinherit them. And I will make of you, Moses, a greater nation, mightier than them. This is the second time this has happened. It happened back in Exodus 32, I believe it was, 32 or 34, where God says, I'm done, Moses, I'm going to start over with you. And Moses is going to look, and he, God says, I'm gonna disinherit them. I'm gonna start all over. And he's, think about this. God understands that if he starts over with Moses, it's going to be an awful long time till he can fulfill his promises to Abraham. Because now he's gotta make a great multitude the sands of the sea. It's gonna be years. And yet God looks and says, that's okay, because he takes rebellion against him seriously. Because God looks and says, it's gonna take time, but you know what? We're gonna, we're gonna deal with this. And so God is willing to wait in order to make things right, with the, have the people make it right. Rebellion and unbelief not only lead us down this road to ruin, but they provoke God to act against us. I think when we talk about sin with our children, we talk about sin with other people, we need to remind people and remind ourselves That when we choose to not follow God's ways, when we choose to act in unbelief, when we choose to rebel against God, we are provoking him to act against us because he is just and he is holy. We must take a deep understanding of sin and God's position on sin. If he is willing to wait generations to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, will he not deal with our sin? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because God is a holy and just God. And Moses lets us into a private plea. From verses 13 to 18, and we're not gonna deal with it all now. I'm gonna deal with it in the next, the next session in our study next week. But look, look at what Moses does here. In verses 13 to 18, he is going to intercede on behalf of the people. The same people who just tried to stone him, the same people who just led a coup against him, The same people who said, you're not good enough, we want you out, and they've done this multiple times. And yet he goes before God and intercedes on behalf of the people. And look what he bases his appeal upon. In verses 13 to 16, he's gonna base the appeal upon God's reputation among the heathen. He's like, if you do this, God, the Egyptians are going to hear about it. The, the Canaanites, they're going to hear about it. And they're going to hear that you brought the people out and you couldn't fulfill your promises. Your reputation, God, your testimony will go down. We don't want that. We don't want your gl- glory to be hurt. And then he says, God, you are faithful. You are faithful of forgiving. And he quotes God, actually, in verses 17 uh, and verse 18, uh, specifically he qu- quotes him out of Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. Where he says, the Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgressions, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and the fourth generation. He says, God, you are a a patient and long-suffering and merciful God. Say, I'm not asking you to clear all of their guilt, but I'm asking you, he's pleading with them to not wipe out the people. There's a pardon that happens. We have this weird tradition in America that the president's going to pardon a turkey. I mean, why? Okay, because somehow if we pardon one, the other three million turkeys that get eaten on that day, somehow it balances out. But we have this, we have this whole pardon thing that happens. And it's the, the releasing of the one. Moses begs, look at verse 19. He says, pardon, I beseech you, the iniquity of this people according unto the greatness of your mercy. And that you have forgiven this people from Egypt even till now. And so he, he looks at them and he, Moses is not saying, please do away, no punishments, nothing like that. That's not what Moses is saying. But Moses is saying, please don't forsake this covenant that you have made with Abraham and with the people. Allow us to still be able to, in short time, go into the land. Allow us to still remain your favored people. And so there's going to be this punishment that happens. We're all, we're all really familiar with the, this passage as a whole because this this passage is big in bible history the punishment's going to take place in verses 20 and following the lord said i have pardoned according to your word we'll look at that more next time but check just let that sink in for a minute the lord who is about to wipe out these people said moses because of your intercession because of your prayers I will pardon. That's amazing. It doesn't remove all the guilt, doesn't remove some of the punishment, but he is going to pardon them. Because divine forgiveness, it doesn't cancel divine fu- punishment. There is still punishment that's going to take place. God has forgiven them. There will be a, uh, a lessening of the initial punishment, but God forgives them. And God's mercy is seen here that he does not wipe them all out right away. This is a passage that liberals will often go to and say, look at, look at, God is just this genocidal maniac who's just looking to wipe out all these people. Look at the mercy of God. He's like, I, this is what I want to do right now. They have provoked me to the point where I'm going to snap my fingers and I'm done with them. And because of the intercession and the pleas of Moses, God says, I will. I will pardon. I will show mercy that occurs here. Now, we see in verses 22 and 23 and you can, I'm not gonna give you everything. You can go back and do some more study on your own. You're gonna get the general statement of the indictment. And then in verses 26 through 35, God's gonna give us the specifics. So the first part, okay, this is what's gonna happen because these men went into the wilderness. It was not good. They shall, verse 23, shall not see the land which I swear unto the fathers, neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. And he says, this is, that's the general. And then the next, the next few verses Lay out the specifics. Verse 24 in the middle, you get a little bit different perspective. You get Caleb. And it says that Caleb did not have the spirit of these other individuals. It wasn't that he just had this unique, amazing power of leadership. It's that Caleb's spirit was spiritually aligned with God. He was looking and saying, this is what God has said. I am going to align myself with the word of God, no matter what the circumstances of life bring me. I'm going to fall on the side of aligning myself with God's word. And so God looks and says, that's what happened. Verse 25, Moses, and this is another one of those circle verses, especially the second half, said then on the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwelt in the valley. Tomorrow, turn you to get into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. That is a command of God given to the people. Moses, we're done here. Go back to the wilderness. By the way of the Red Sea, you're gonna head back toward Egypt, the direction the people want. We are going back that direction. And God has punished them. And God they are not able to enter into the promised land because of their decisions, because of their rebellion against God. So God is gonna make some promises. Now, if you're like me, when we see God's promises, we get all warm and fuzzy because we like to claim God's promises, Right? We love to to Google and to search out what are God's promises for my life? These are promises that we're gonna see here in just a moment. We think of it in a positive light. However, these ones are gonna be promises of God that we don't want to experience. And the Israelites are about to be on the wrong side of the coin. Look at what God says. He's gonna look and he's going to lay out in verses 27 and following, how long shall I bear this? And he's gonna talk about verse 29. Your carcasses shall fall in the wilderness, all of you that were numbered. Doubtless, you shall not come into the land, verse 30. Verse 31 the, the ones you thought would be prey, I'm gonna bring in your little ones. You shall fall in the wilderness, verse 32. There are all of these negatives that it's gonna be there. But who's gonna face this punishment? And, and I wanna park here for a second because. I think, as I've been studying and going through this, and I went and talked with Pastor because I'm like, hey, let's, let's talk about this for a second. You know, what, what's your thought? Because who, who's, gonna, who's gonna experience this punishment? And our quick answer is always those above the age of 20, correct? We look, in, we look in verse 29, and we instantly just, we see that all of you who are numbered according to the whole number from the age 20 and upward, they're gonna, they're gonna experience it. But let's look a little bit closer at verse 29. It says, all that were numbered according to the census... Now those of you who studied with us all the way through this census that's being talked about is the census of chapter 1 it is the military census it is the census of those men of able-bodied men of Israel who were able to go by faith and fight on behalf of Israel so what does it say here it says that the ones who are going to die are those who were numbered according to the census who was not counted in that it was the levites levites were in another chapter their census is later on. It's not a military census. It also says in this verse, those who murmured against me. So is, is this talking, does this limit? There's, there's a couple different arguments that occur here. Does this limit, those who murmured against me, limit the first group? In other words, all those that were numbered in the census, and out of all those people numbered, those who specifically murmured against me, those are going to be the ones who are going to fall in the wilderness, or is it looking and saying all of those who were numbered in the census and anybody who else who murmured against me? So there's, and, and commentators fall on both ends. And there's not a hundred percent. Now I know we've always been taught that it's everybody, right? It's just 20 and up, you're gone. But this, where I personally lean, and this is, this is not thus saith the Lord, this is Totally thus saith art, and good luck with that. You probably want to just turn your ears off right now. But it seems to be, when we look look at the language, definitely those men who were numbered in the census, who were supposed to fight by faith and go in, and they have cowered in fear. They were going to. But what about the men, the women, the children? What about other people? I think that it leans toward that idea of, And those who also murmur because we know that throughout the passage, the whole congregation, there's a lot of people murmuring. And so God allows that. But what it, what it does, you say, well, why does that even matter as we wrestle through and we, we try and figure that out? Why does it matter? Because some questions come up. It helps answer the question, why did Moses and Aaron later on lose their right to go to the promised land? Because if you look at the punishment, what does it say? Everybody's got, nobody's going to the land except for Joshua and Caleb. Well, if, that's, if Joshua and Caleb are the only ones who are going to the promised land, then why later on does it say, Moses, you just lost your right to go to the promised land? Well, Moses is a Levite. Aaron is a Levite. The Levites were not counted in the census. And so the Levites were not part of that group that was, that was going to die initially in. What about Eliezer? Joshua chapter 14, verse one, Eliezer, who is Aaron's son, who is already serving as a priest, which means he's over the age of 20. In Joshua chapter 14, he's in the promised land. So either we've got huge issues with with the Bible and the Bible has lots of errors all of a sudden, or we have to wrestle through verse 29 and look and say, wait, maybe our our quick Sunday school answer has not been as consistent with scripture as always. Could this allow then too, with God's mercy and justice, why were there not mass graves? throughout the, the found throughout the the wilderness? Could it be that there were individuals who, though all of Israel, the general tenor was to murmur against God, that there were still some who stayed faithful to God and God in his mercy and his justice said, we don't know on all of that. We do know that there are some who were not named Joshua and Caleb who go into the promised land. We do know that there were some who were not Joshua and Caleb who were supposed to go into the promised land, but later on forfeited their right to go into the promised land, that being Moses and Aaron. So when we look at verse 29, it seems, again, everybody's split on it. But it seems to, most most commentators, I will say this, they, they hold to the idea of the census being Numbers chapter one, that the military census. The split comes on the murmuring of the people. Was it everybody? Or was it allowing for God to, see in his divine justice and his divine wisdom. And this, the opposite's true though too. If God deemed that everybody murmured against him and he wiped out everybody, then God is just in that. But it's just something to start thinking about. You can do some more study. If you come back and you find that commentary that gives the definitive answer, please let me know. Help me out. But it's, a, it's just something to be, to be thinking about as we go forward. But notice the promises of God in this passage. I will do this to you. Verse 28 I will leave your carcasses in the wilderness. You are to be punished who will come into the land that I promised. He's like, you little ones, I will bring them into the promised land. You're gonna wander for 40 years. These are all promises of God that you don't want to be facing. And yet all of the children of Israel are now facing this because of the rebellion against God. He's like, you will. Verse 35, I will surely. The Lord says, I will surely. He doesn't even leave you any doubt. I will surely do this unto this evil congregation that all gathered together against me in this wilderness, they shall be consumed. All the ones that gathered against me will be consumed and there they shall die. There are times in life we don't wanna be on the, the bad side of God's promises. And the road to ruin, the rebellion against God, the decisions against God, our unbelief, our fear, our doubts against God's goodness and his love, They put us on those wrong sides of those promises. And we don't want to find ourselves there. And I think it's really important for us to remind ourselves that when we talk about the gospel, let's not sugarcoat it. The gospel is good news, but the only reason it's good news is because there's bad news. That we need to share with people that if you're not right with God, if you are not saved, there is judgment. And it is a just judgment by a holy God. And they need to hear that. And we need to tell them about that because without the bad news, there is no good news. And that's what happens here. There's good news for some people. There's grace that we see in this passage because God says, I will bring your little ones in, the ones you thought would die. I will bring them in. We see God's grace. But the reason that's good news for the little ones is because it's bad news for the older ones, the ones who've made that decision against God. So what happens Look at verse 36 and 37, 38. All of this gets laid out. God is telling all of this. And then he's gonna say, wait, there's another group I need to deal with. This is in the men which Moses sent to search the land who returned and made all the congregation to murmur against him by bringing up a slander upon the land. Even those men that did bring up the evil report, there's God again saying, this is an evil report upon the land they died by plague before the Lord. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, which were of the men that were to search out the land, they still lived. What an object lesson. To look and to go, uh, I think we just picked the wrong side. Because they are all now Dead. And now we have these two who just told us to change our act standing before us and still living. And we, we see that the people are gonna, they're gonna get that later on in the passage because they're going to mourn greatly at the end of verse 39. Why are they mourning? Because they're realizing this is not good. The situation they're in, they have made some bad choices and there are consequences that are gonna happen to their life. But the plague that happened specifically to them, Why? Because in doing so, in bringing this evil report, they caused, they were the agents of causing of murmuring against the Lord. And we as believers, we ought to be cautious of this sin. Causing other believers to murmur, to complain against God, against his leadership, against the people that he has placed sovereignly in control That is what God deals with these people. They bring out this evil report that ultimately challenges the goodness and the sovereignty and the authority of our great God. And there is punishment that is brought to them. And it's important to note that the rebellious road to ruin, it has a ripple effect. It started with 10. It went to a whole bunch of people and it hurt an entire generation. It spread. Fear, unbelief, doubt, it all spread. Rather than spreading the goodness and the power and the majesty and the wonder of our great God who sits on the throne, who is in total control, there is no chaos in his world. Instead of spreading that, they spread fear. Murmurings, complainings, doubt, unbelief, uncomfortableness. And we see that God judges. And it's a tipping point for Israel. It amazes me that a mere speech, a mere speech of these powerful people in the land, the ones with fortified cities and these great giants, granted, that would terrify us. When you start doing the math on these the the sons of Anak who are 12 and 13 foot tall, Og, the son of Bashan, Bashan. his bed is 13 foot, six inches long. His bed's six foot wide. The dude was a beast. He was huge. It would strike a little fear and terror into us. And yet Joshua and Caleb's go, he's bred to us because God's in control. And yet this speech tips the, tips the, the scales for Israel. What's our tipping point? I hope it wasn't this week for us in our spiritual lives that we're going to walk away from God and think God's not in control that we're going to walk away and say God I think you really goofed up maybe, you're, maybe you think you did everything right maybe you're, you're loving it I don't know I can't speak for everybody here but I can look and say God's on the throne that's what Numbers 14 is about and that's what the people of Numbers 14 missed Is that he's in control and he's all powerful. And notice what happened. God gave the people what they wanted. They did not want the fear of being crushed by giants. They did not want the fear of being consumed by the promised land. They did not want to fear their children and their wives entering in the land and being devastated. They wanted the ability to head back into the wilderness away from danger. They didn't want the fear, they didn't want the uncomfortableness, they didn't want the unknown, they didn't want to have to on a daily basis rely upon our sovereign God. Rather, they want to do their own thing and head back. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof, it's death, it's destruction. We can look at our nation, but let's internalize here for a little bit. Where are we at? Personally. God? I know my theology. Help me to live my theology out today. Help me to respond to you correctly. Help me to trust in everything that you are doing. Help me to know that you are on the throne and my ways are not your ways and I am so glad they are not. And I'm gonna trust in you. And I'm not gonna cause division and I'm not gonna cause murmuring in my church body. I'm going to elevate and exalt one another. And I'm going to encourage the body of believers to live righteously and to fulfill our mission and to do what God has called us to do and to go out and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that is the only thing that can change this world. That's what we need to be doing. It demands a response. There's a response that is required here. What's gonna happen? We're going to look at that next time. We're not, going to, we're not going to dive into it. We'll finish up chapter 14 in our next one. But to look at the response, you know, if you want to, go back and look. Look at Moses's response. Do a little study on Moses's response. And then the rest of the chapter on the people's response. Some really interesting dynamics and how they really go in opposite directions.